Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you're listening to the Corporate Unplugged podcast for people shaping the future of business. And on the show today, Giampiero Petrivieri, Professor of Organizational Behavior at INSEAD and one of the 50 most influential management thinkers in the world. So today we'll talk about leadership and learning. Very big welcome to my podcast. I'm, I'm really grateful that our paths have crossed thanks to our friend Eda Charmikli in Istanbul. Thank you very much for having me, Vesna. So Gianfiero, the first thing I'm curious about is really your passion. You know that that word patire that comes from the Latin, like something that you're so passionate about that you're also willing to suffer for it if needed. What is that to you? For me, it's um, humanizing leadership and humanizing work more generally. And what I mean by that is, um, I think, to bring all the complexities of our inner world and of our social world, if you think about that, you know, as, as leaders or as humans, we have to deal with all that complexity and not leave that out of the way we understand our work and the way we live at work. And that's hard. It's hard to think about it. It's hard to write about it. But most of all, it's hard to take that path in our work, whether it's in, your, in my education, in my coaching work, or for my students and clients in their managerial work. I think it, you need to have passion to be human in the workplace when so much of the history and so much of the present of workplace norms and practices have been so mechanical, so technological. You really must want it. And at the same time, I would argue we need it because if we don't bring that passion in the workplace, then we're not bringing ourselves to the workplace. And if we're not bringing ourselves in the workplace, we are absent from the very place in which many of us spend a very significant portion of our lives. So this idea, this practice of humanizing leadership and humanizing work is something that has really oriented my professional trajectory from the very beginning and that I still feel strongly today. And, uh, it's given me joy, and yes, it's uh, sometimes uh, really worn me down quite significantly, but I'm still at it, and I'm very, very far from having succeeded, which is the way passion works. There's always that longing, right? You know, there's never that destination. is always that bit further, further away, but that light out there is... Um, both incredibly beautiful and somewhat maddening. And I'm fortunate because I don't just have a passion, because I, I find uh, a passion by yourself can become an obsession. It can, it can consume you, right? If you, you use the etymology of passion, and we know that passion was something for the mystics and can end very badly. And so for me, it's important not to just have passion, but to also have relations, friends, of that passion that allow that passion to remain an inspiration rather than cross the line into an obsession. 
And that's something you cannot do on your own. No matter how mindful, how determined you are, if you have a passion without having friends, it will turn into an obsession, it will destroy you. And so, you know, when I talk about humanizing leadership, humanizing work, I don't just mean something we do by ourselves. I also mean forging the kind of relations that allow us to stay human. At the end of the day, what makes us human is not just being in touch with our inner world, its complexity and all the messiness that comes with it, but it's also being in touch with other people and their complexity and all the messiness that comes with trying to truly relate rather than just transact. We live in this kind of uh, turbulent times, uh, of course, and, and uh, a lot of things happening in society. And there's so many people that always long for these leaders. But at the same time, if and when they pop up, they mistrust them or they question them and so on. So I'm just like thinking, like, what is a good leader in our times, do you think? What, what does it mean really to lead well? I think what you describe is a result of the fact that, you know, we both long for kind of perfect leaders, charismatic leaders, inspiring leaders. And certainly, you know, I think people in my business have done very little to warn people against that longing. And of course, you know, with charismatic leadership, there is also a certain element of submission required. And therefore, we're naturally ambivalent. And so I think the more we seek a certain kind of leader, the more likely we are to then feel mistrust when those leaders pop up. I think if we wanted to have leaders that were a little more trustworthy, then we would have to seek leaders that were a little less exciting. And I think that quest for the good enough leader somewhat betrays what many of us long for, which is, you know, that one person, you know, that sort of in, in one fell swoop would deliver us from all our trouble. And of course, that person never comes or only appears to be that person. And, then, and so every time we fall into that cycle of charismatic leadership, then we are bound to be excited and then feel betrayed. And for me, a good leader is someone who's able to balance promise and progress. And more recently, I've been looking into that most fundamental question, what is leadership? And I, I began talking about leadership as a kind of love. You know, in the same way that parenting is a kind of love, friendship is a kind of love, romance is a kind of love. And if you think about it, then you can ask yourself, is all love the same or is some love better than others? And, you know, in, all, in our lives, we all have had the relationships of being loved in a way that was sometimes hurtful or sometimes dissatisfying and other times pleasurable and inspiring or, or elevating. And so for me, the question of what is a good and a bad leader is remarkably similar or what makes for good or bad love. And bad love tends to be anxious, possessive, objectifying. I love you, but I actually love myself in your presence. And, you know, for example, in romantic love, sometimes you can have that at the beginning of a relationship where I don't really care for you as much as I want you, I need you, I feel like a sense. there's a possessiveness to bad love that is the same in bad leadership. 
there's a sense of I want to be a leader because if I weren't, my if you didn't follow me, my ego would be hurt or, you know, it's um, I'm leading for myself. And then if I think of what is a good love relationship, and I sometimes ask people, you know, ask my students, you know, tell me what makes a joke, you know, what, what makes for a good lover and a bad lover. And they say, oh, you know, a good lover is this attentive, generous, uh, caring, interested. And then we dig a little bit more and say, it's not just technicalities. No, no, what is it? Is that a bad love is characterized by worry. I worry that if you leave me, something is going to happen. And good love is characterized by care. There's a switch. You know, if, if you look at all the literature that actually, and I've, I've been doing that, that looks at love relationships and maturity. There's this switch from worrying about myself to caring about someone else or something else. And from having pleasure as a purpose, which is sometimes happens in some love relationships, all I want is the pleasure of your presence, to having pleasure in the purpose. You know, it gives me joy to just do something. Or, you know, that when I ask people, what's the best kind of love that you've seen? It's not just passion. You know, you mentioned the word passion. But, you know, even after the passion, there remains a care. And I actually warn people, you know, to lead out of passion. You know, I always say, you know, what's going to be there? Once the passion ends, what's going to be there? Because the great love relationships are not based just on passion. They're based on care. So if you ask me in summary, what makes good leadership? It's not based on worry. It's based on care. And so far too many of those kind of leaders that we admire and then we mistrust. They prey on our worries. They really kind of find what we worry about. They make us worry more, and then they promise that they'll make their worry go away. It's exactly what was happening also in, in political leadership. That's seduction. That's not, that is seduction. That is not love. Yeah, yeah. So for me, good leadership is the one in which, of course, there is an element of seduction, but then there has to be something more. There has to be care. Of course, there has to be a promise. But then there has to be something more. There has to be progress. Look, I, I come from the world of psychiatry and I'm interested in literature and all this stuff. You know, I, of course, I think leadership is um, something that is tremendously ineffable and emotional. But more and more, you know, I also think if it's just that, if there isn't anything of the practical, if nothing gets built, if nothing gets cared for, then it's not good. And the last thing I want to say is, I think like good love, good leadership doesn't just make you feel good. It makes you feel free. And it's very rare to have a relationship in which you feel good, you feel safe, but you also feel free. In most relationships, it doesn't work that way, uh, whether they're friendship or whether they're leaderships. And I actually use leadership in that way. Like you have a friendship, you have a leadership. It's a relationship. And once you think of it as a relationship, then the question is, what makes a good relationship? Uh, what makes a good relationship is that you feel committed, but you don't feel captive. You don't feel like in order to be in a relationship with you, I have to leave a part of myself out of the door. Otherwise, a relationship would be in geo. You feel the exact opposite. Because I'm in a relationship with you, more of myself can come out. I can discover. In fact, if you ask people, what are the leaders, not that made you most excited, but you remember 10, 15 years later, they often tell you, oh, it was someone not quite that saw me, 
that imagined me, that saw me in a way in which I couldn't yet see myself. And in that moment, I trusted that I could become that person. For me, that is good leadership. It's a leadership that imagines you in a more expansive way than you can imagine yourself at present. And bad leadership is the opposite. It's a leadership that forces you to make yourself smaller in order to stay attached. It's worry instead of care. In the presence of worry, we shrink. And in the presence of care, we usually expand. Now, when you when you talked about this, I almost uh, teared up here because I've actually had a couple of experiences like that over my um, you know professional life, where you say that people they they communicated that they believe in me, not through words but in other ways, and I picked that up and that brought me to another place. I don't want to say another level because it was not about career. No, but best now you say it exactly right. I think all leadership does that. All leadership brings you to another place. And I think every leader promises you a better place, but good leadership brings you to a freer place. Yeah, care and freedom. But today, I think some, somewhere I, I read somewhere you, you were talking about leadership as one part of, of leadership is also about not storytelling as much as story building. I think all leadership, and I've, I've used this idea a lot, right? Leadership is a story that moves. You know, leadership is a story that moves you. It's a story that moves others. It's a story that has to move from idea to reality. If it doesn't move you, you lose motivation. If it doesn't move others, you lose followers. If it doesn't move to reality, you lose results. And, you know, look, I work in a business school, so I'm interested in leadership broadly, but certainly in business, certainly in organization, if you lose motivation, if you lose followers, and if you lose results, it's hard to remain a leader for very long. And I have become, yes, I've become a little grumpy with this idea. It's so popular. Leadership is storytelling, you know. And the truth is, lots of people tell great stories. And it sort of diminishes leadership to some kind of rhetoric. And I think, of course, there is a rhetorical part to leadership. Of course, it's important to know what your story is and you can articulate it. You know, lots of people can tell stories. Every CEO can say technology is going to change the world and <laughs> everyone laughs. But when Steve Jobs used to do it, people would just stop. Like every politician says, oh, you know, equality is at the center of my care. And people can roll their eyes. But when Mandela used to say something like that, people listened. And again, you can have a million examples in history where lots of people were saying the same story. But some people just were able to capture not just the imagination, uh, because leadership can't just capture your imagination. Then it has to also capture your body. It has to put you to work. It's not enough to just imagine. Otherwise, we kind of, again, fall in this sort of intellectualizing, romanticizing of leadership. Stuff has to get done and energy has to be spent. It's not enough that you articulate a good story. It's also necessary that you embody that story. You cannot bring other people into a story that you don't own. And then you have to actually build. Uh, good stories are told, but powerful stories are built. In the olden days, powerful stories were built like physically, you know, you know they became buildings and institutions. I mean, today, powerful stories are built into code. They become, you know, stories become places, as you said. Stories become places that we inhabit. 
And of course, you know, it used to be, and it still is to a great degree, stories become physical places, like, you know, stories acquire territory, and we call that territory a dwelling, a, a house, a country, a company. And today, stories acquire territory in the digital world, and we inhabit those places. And the stories that make those places determine what we can think and what we cannot think, who feels what, what we can do and what we cannot do. And in that respect, you know, they, they are the they are the invisible infrastructure that give meaning and, and sort of organizes the places we inhabit. And then the question is, some stories build place where, you know, again, going back to what we were saying earlier, where we feel, you know, we have to be really small that can only bring a certain part of ourselves. So we possibly get kicked out of that place. And some stories bring places that are a bit more spacious. And the best stories, to me, build places where you don't just have to have a single story. And leaders are basically the conduit. Leaders are basically the conduit. The only reason why you have to ask yourself, why do every group figures out, you know, finds a leader, even if they're not given one, they, they will find one for themselves. You know, leadership has always existed in human societies. And why is that? Because people want someone that both represents the story and then helps to build it. This is why leaders are kind of in equal natures the stewards and shapers. It's important that you're able to kind of embody the worries and the desires of the people that trust you. But then it's also important that you're able to build something that is able to build a place where those worries might diminish and those aspirations might um, be fulfilled. And every time a leader gets our trust, and then they don't build a place that diminishes our worries or fulfills our aspirations, then we naturally feel betrayed because that's what we expected in the first place. And there is so much um, that I admire when I see somebody as a leader is because they stand for something. They, you know, and there is this kind of ethical dimension into it. And it's all about making choices on an everyday basis and also daily stuff, right? But I'm just thinking like if we could turn to ourselves as, as humans as well, if we are leaders, why is it so difficult? Why do they so often go wrong? When they tell the story, everything sounds great, but then in the daily life, they fail too often so that people around them, as you say, feel betrayed. I think we need to have a little compassion too for our beings, because as you say, leadership isn't just a position or, you know, someone you see on TV or on YouTube video or you read about in the books, all this kind of, you know, dramatization of leadership. Leadership is you and I when we are in a certain state of mind. And what is that state of mind? It's a state of mind in relation to a system. Most of us as human beings, well, all of us as human beings, we live in relation to systems. That system might be a family, it might be a classroom, it might be an institution, it might be a country, it might be a religion, but we live in relation of systems. Some of them might be fluid and informal, some of them are really kind of all formal. We live in a relation to a system, and the system shapes us. I mean, we know 99% of the time we are products of systems. But as human beings, we like to feel that sometimes, somewhere, someone is not just getting shaped by the system which is an experience we have every single day. I gotta behave like this to remain in my family, to 
be able to be part of this club, to stay employed, to go in a class and all that. We like to think that somewhere, someone is also shaping systems. And that someone who makes the system instead of being made by the system, we call a leader. So for me, a leader is anyone at the point in which they say, okay, I have the responsibility and ability to shape this system a little bit. And whether you're trying to expand a country or you're trying to say, let's, let's bake better baguettes, you know, at the boulangerie, it's the same thing. What you're saying is, I don't just want to be one of the bodies that reproduces the system. I want to be in that space in which I'm going to try to change the system, to take whatever, you know, I, you might have seen, I'm, I've talked about, you know, one of the aspects of leadership is always arguing with some kind of tradition. There's a tradition and traditions just replicate themselves left to their own devices or decay. And leadership is kind of the vehicle for those traditions to renew or to change. And so you, as a leader, you always end up arguing with some tradition. And that's hard because you have those moments in which you feel like, yes, I'm going to shape the system. And then the system, you know, <laughs> comes after you. And it's easy to get discouraged. And it's easy to feel you're too small. And it's easy to feel you don't have enough time. And it's easy to feel you have, don't have enough resources because all that is true. All that is true. So sustaining that leadership mindset and then putting it into practice and then being able to kind of forge relationships that allow you to keep going and allow not you, but your idea to be built is terribly hard. And I think we have to first, we have to have some compassion for those failures if we want to address them. Because a lot of leadership, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to deny that some leadership failures are due to malevolence. I was actually trying to manipulate people in order to benefit myself. And then eventually, you know, this was discovered or things unraveled. I mean, that certainly does exist. A lot of leadership failures are really not due to that. They're due to someone that maybe was um, asked to do too much without having the appropriate resources. Someone that you know, tried and couldn't hold. And I think for those moments, I do have compassion. And I actually sometimes, you know, when I coach people, when I teach, I said, when you need to know when you begin failing as a leader. And in many of the cases I observed is you begin to fail as a leader when an opportunity to lead opens. There is that seed of trust. Either formally people say, could you please take over this position? Or informally people are looking at you again, to make the system a little better. And you look at that opportunity and you're nodding. You are ready. You want to take the lead. And instead of saying, this is the help I'm going to need, you say, thank you for the opportunity. And in that moment, you're thinking mostly about how do I prove to you that I deserved it? Instead, what do I need to get done? And what am I going to do? In that very moment in which you worry about what others are going to be thinking of you rather than asking for the help you need you're beginning to fail you're beginning to love worried instead of love caring and so for me yes you know i i'm sure you know others can kind of write about the drama of leadership and the malevolent people that are trying to screw the but i'm interested in other failures i'm interested in the failures that started with the good intentions that started in the moment in which someone felt that either they couldn't or they didn't know how to ask for help. And a leader who can't ask for help, he's doomed because they worry too much and care too little. 
And it's just so easy when you're, when you're asked to lead to worry about what you need to show rather than care for what you need to get done. And in my work, you know, I call that moving from your drive, what do I need to prove to your intent? What are we trying to do? And let's say uh, there is a leader of a company, 55, six years old or so, has worked in a certain way, everything has worked very well, and then now is changing his mind around what kind of legacy of his company he wants to leave behind. You know, the wise um, experience kind of voice from his inner self is kind of making itself... The midlife crisis, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, and, and, and everybody in the company knows him in a certain way, being the tough, super smart, intelligent, driven, boom, you know, guy. And then now he actually wants to change and he wants the company to change with him. But people are so used to his way of being that they don't, how can I say, allow him. Or even if he tries, they go, hmm, I don't believe you. What is there to do there? At some point or other, if you want to be a good leader instead of just a knight in shiny armor, you're going to have to say, I need you. That point can come at 25, at 35, at 65, when you are you know, in your first management position or when you are the CEO. And of course, it's harder for people who have been socialized to prove themselves rather than you know, get stuff done. And I think at that moment, it's, it, it's very hard. I know what you mean. It's very hard because you have to choose. And I think those people represent a kind of larger social choice for me. You can either have your traditional image of leadership or you can have a very human and sustainable legacy or you can have a more relational practice of leadership. Because the kind of image of leadership that we have handled and embodied forever isn't very relational. It just isn't. You know, it's very individualistic, it's very heroic, and that gets in the way. And so really you need to, and, uh, and sometimes you need to show you mean it. As always, you know, yeah, I mean, the, the fact that people at the beginning, when you change, of course, they won't trust you. Do you really mean it? And all of that. And so the question I usually invite those kind of people to ask is to, to ask people around them, what would you have to see? for you to trust that I mean this time and just admit it that other times actually you either didn't ask or you asked and you didn't mean it and then you know don't listen to all the answers but listen to some answer and claim it and say I, this is what I heard and this is what I'm, I'm going to try to do and I'm going to reward those of people who hold me to account and then when they hold you to account reward them and this is where, you know, but I think that's kind of change. Look, that kind of change is the classic, you know, in the olden days, we talked about the midlife crisis, right? I don't have forever. You know, the moment you realize, you know, that the impending approach of death and finality, whatever, I might have five years. In fact, none of us know how long we have. The only thing we know is it's going to end. At the moment, we know that the moment we kind of feel the sense of finality, then we become either more obsessive, you know, some people really kind of work harder and try, but many people become, especially people who have been fortunate, become a little bit more expansive. They want to be more generous. They want to be more connected. They don't want to completely lose themselves, especially people who feel they might have lost something on the way to where they go. And I'm really interested in, I, I actually think of the process here, of the moment you're describing us, you know, it's a moment of self-recovery. And we know a lot about people who are recovering from addiction. Like they have had some kind of 
relationship, some kind of an addiction to a substance that failed or tried to fail when it didn't fail, some sort of void or, or hole or loss. And for many people, that substance isn't a drug, it's work, right? And some of this, and it's interesting that you said he, right? You know, some, it's often men who have been pushing themselves and have been pushed in this very traditional kind of give up everything in order to get to the top and all. And at some point they realize, have I lost myself or is there still time? And that's a very good question. What do we know about recovering from addiction? You need other people. You know, that's why there are a lot of recovery programs are group-based. You need a community. And the first thing is to say, I have been using this surrogate. And the reason why we need a community is because that addiction was a surrogate that stopped you confronting some difficulties in relating to yourself and relating to others so that you say, I have a problem and we take it from there. And other people are there to challenge you and other people are there to hold you. And so when someone comes to me and says, you know, I'm facing this, and I say, that's great. Let's think about it as a self-recovery. And so there's two directions. One is, what is the self you're trying to recover and bring to work? What would you like? You know, tell me about the way you would be if you weren't lonely, stressed, um, so technically um, minded. Just describe me what you would look like. And the second thing I say is, who's going to hold you as you bring that larger, more complex, more perhaps pained, joyful, more human self to work? And here's the news. Given the kind of socializations that we've been exposed to, given the norms of many workplaces, I think all of us need that kind of self-recovery. We all need to ask ourselves, what would a more expansive human self look like? And then we need to ask ourselves, who's going to hold us? And some people say, oh, I, there's, there's no one in my workplace. People are, I've made them too numb and too scared. You know, I've, I've heard this, I'm ashamed. I don't have people who are going to hold me because now they're too numb and too scared around me. I said, okay, that's why many, exactly why many people don't do self-recovery from addictions in their family. They go somewhere and say, so who else? Do you have a group of people? Do you have a former school classmate? Do you have a coach? Do you have a therapist? Find support. Seriously, this is completely paradoxical because, of course, we tend to think of leaders and we tend to think that when we are leaders, we shouldn't be supporting. We should be actually support, need support. We should be supporting others. But the truth is, and you see, I come from the healthcare world. You know, I trained as a doctor and, and, and in that world, we have a one very simple understanding, which is you can only care for others to the extent to which you allow care. I look at top athletes. I mean, executives love comparing themselves to athletes. If you think of athletes, the more prominent they become, I mean, at the beginning, they have very little support. But as they become, you know, go towards the Olympic, they have the nutritionist, the mental coach, their technical coach, their physical coach. They have a whole team that holds them to being the best person. And they don't just tell them, push yourself. They also tell them, now stop and rest. Executives is exactly the opposite. When you're junior, you have a lot of support, your manager, your mentor, this and that. But as they become, my experience, as they become more senior, they feel like, well, now I should push myself harder and do it on my own. Because in this role, I mean, I should have my act together. So don't come to me and say, I take a lot of inspiration 
from the Olympians or this is my favorite runner or cyclist. No, but you don't. Because that runner or cyclist that you take inspiration from has a staff of 12 people that keeps them healthy so that they can push at specific moments, not all the time, right? And so when, when you find that person, you, what you ask is, who cares for you? So overall, what do you think is the most important thing for companies to focus on right now? For me, inclusion. And I tell you why, because organizations have shifted their discourse from one to we're building a machine to deliver certain goals to now we're building a society. You know, we are a community and we have a social impact and we're interested in sustainability and whatnot. And you can't build a society with the same principles with which you build a machine. And I think business is a little bit caught in the rhetoric of society building and the practice that's still tied to the you know, traditional mechanical understanding of business. So if an organization is no longer a machine, but it's a society, then the focus cannot be efficiency and alignment. It also has to be sort of imagination and inclusion. And I think very often because of our pervasive obsession with alignment, we miss out on being more inclusive and being, you know, also more innovative and whatnot. And given how quickly the world moves and how much higher social expectations are of business, if you're just building a machine, your machine is going to be inadequate immediately and obsolete very soon. My last question to you is this one. What do you think the world needs most at this time? Care. You know, the... There's a lot of people in it, and it's hard to stretch our circle of care to that large a number, and there's only one planet. And it's important to care for it, because if we want to be good leaders, we should preserve or build places that are not just for us to inhabit, but are for our kids and their kids and their kids' kids to inhabit. And so it's important, it's more than ever, you know, and one of the things that you see these days is being the opposite, you know, it's kind of this retreat into a sort of tribalism and winning the exact opposite, winning a more imaginative kind of care, you know, expands far beyond the confines of our traditional places. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for sharing. And uh, to find out more, you will find useful links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. Thanks for listening. To make it easy for you to find and listen to this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and please share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. And please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca and you've been listening to The Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao, ciao. Thank you.